you get cost savings by upfront investment in design and effort. And that leads to benefit long term because it's far more efficient. I mean, we'll speak financially, at least for right this minute, to make changes early on before you've put bricks and mortar in a, in a physical space or time into a process uh, than it is to go back and retrofit something. And so there's an intersection of where the efficiencies occur, but it's intuitive when you look at the curve, but it's it's not how most of us, I think, make decisions. We're, we're, we're we want to just make a decision right now and, and solve it. And so that's, that's not efficient always. This is the Visible Voices podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word from the makers of Frame of Mind podcast, an art and wellness podcast of the Met Museum. How can art bring us hope, joy, and a sense of wellness? It makes us feel connected. It makes us feel loved. Your whole soul opens up. Art saved my life and kept me out of trouble, kept me on the right path. We're tapping into the minds of people who have deeply connected with art in their own lives to find out how art can be a tool for well-being. Join us in listening to their stories on Frame of Mind, an art and wellness podcast from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listeners. Today's episode is a health design episode. I'm joined by two friends who are also emergency physicians who are also health designers. L.A. Alvarez is a national leader and educator on wellness and diversity, equity, and inclusion. He's a clinical assistant professor of emergency medicine and the director of well-being at Stanford University Emergency Medicine. He's currently one of the faculty fellows at the Stanford Byers Center for Biodesign. My second guest is Dr. Andrew Petrosoniak. He's a trauma team leader and emergency physician at St. Michael's Hospital in... Toronto, Canada. He's co-principal at Advanced Performance Healthcare Design. This firm, quote, uses simulation-informed design to crash test systems, spaces, and things, thus improving safety and efficiency. They base their work on four pillars, design, build, train, excel. Okay, let's get to the conversation. Health design efficiency, making better decisions, reducing frustration, and coming to solutions that are successful. Andrew, does that speak to you in terms of the work of your firm, Advanced Performance Healthcare Design? Making decisions uh, earlier, but with better information and and making them with more certainty so that, you know, if you under- truly understand the problem, you invest a little bit more upfront time in that and using understanding the people, the users, the complexity of the environment that that whatever the actors are behaving in or, or, or working in uh, really does lead to, I think, better, um, better outcomes long term so that you're not uh, resulting, you know, your, your return on investment is sort of amplified because you don't have uh, these retrofits and whether that be a retrofit of a process, a space, um, you know, getting people back together for a meeting to redo the whole plan of, and I don't mean just clinical infrastructure, I mean anything, um, whether it's a medical curriculum to to a physical space. I mean, design and integrating it, and it doesn't, it's not, it's just a tool, but but it should be part of, you know, any new innovative 
plan. I mean, if you, QI works great when you have um, an established and you're just trying to tweak an assembly line when you know that that is the best way of doing something. But, but in medicine, often we don't know what the best way of doing something is. And so this, and there's so many different individuals or, or stakeholders or groups or actors, whatever you might want to refer to them. So then you need to understand what their perspectives are. And there's, this is a unique way of establishing that. And we've talked a little bit about this already, Risa, about the, the McLeamy curve, um, which is maybe you reference this in the in notes, but but it's this notion that the architects that architectural um, uh, the industry uses that um, you get cost savings by upfront investment in design and effort, and that leads to benefit long term because it's far more efficient. I mean, we'll speak financially at least for right this minute to make changes early on before you've put bricks and mortar in a, in a physical space or time into a process uh, than it is to go back and retrofit that something. And so there's an intersection of where the efficiencies occur, but, but it's, it, it's quite enough. Um, it's, it's intuitive when you look at the curve, but it's, it's not how most of us, I think, make decisions. We're, we're, we're desi- we want to just make a decision right now. And, and solve it. And so that's, that's not efficient always. Yeah. Um, especially as emergency doctors, like decisiveness, make a decision, act. Uh, LA, you have pursued uh, education training in health design and you alluded to, to help with your role in wellness. Can you expand upon that? Yes. Yeah, Andrew was saying a lot of the decisions that we make, especially as emergency physicians are Quick, uh, we kind of weigh in risk versus benefits, and then we just jump on that. Um, I think understanding uh, human-centered design is really helpful um, in the context of um, really understanding how any um, solutions that we implement will affect the end users, as Andrew was referring to. Um, most of our decisions usually is just like that retrofitting uh, that uh, was said. It's really more trying to use an existing solution to another problem, which may not be actually the right solution. Um, And from a wellness perspective, a lot of these cause a lot more frustration because we're also working with smart people um, in high performance teams, right? So you have physicians, nurses who have trained very well on their craft. And then when there's a new problem that arises, just kind of using existing solution may not always work and not really understanding them in that context also adds uh, to that burnout uh, that people are experiencing. Can you give a specific example? Yeah. Um, so for instance, um, I so uh, Andrew mentioned quality, for instance, and, and this is not necessarily like design thinking from a, a product perspective, but designing from a, um, a, just a human-centered perspective. Um, when I was the quality director, um, I would review all the cases, and if something lights up, I would just send a, an email, uh, secure a case, and then I'll give you the topic, right? Um, what I learned over, and I, immediately, but definitely over the course of uh, a few years, was that people stopped talking to me because they were terrified of me, and uh, they they associated me with mistakes. And so when it, when I switched roles and I actually took into medical education, I volunteered to be the QI person for the residency. And specifically what I would do is once I knew a case would uh, come up, 
I would actually then I had to change the way that I would deliver the message. And so I would have this like formal email, but at the bottom, a bunch of resources. And then before I even send that, I would reach out to the, the, the resident ahead of time, either both actually by email or text, let them know, hey, heads up, you're going to get a case. It's actually not that bad. It's just a formal letter that I am sending you. Let's talk about it. Here's my number. Call me, text me, however um, you want. And over those years, then people actually started coming up to me. Hey, I had this case. And so even if it's not related to quality, like a formal quality review, there's a, there's that psychological safety that happened because of just a simple change that I had to do because I was thinking more of the end user as opposed to the checklist that I needed to do for my job. So I think for me, that's a, another function of like applying design thinking. So Andrew, you know, going back to uh, advanced performance healthcare design simulation solutions, uh, you outlined four pillars, design, build, train, excel. Can you make that concrete for the audience? Give an example. Yeah, so I can, um, I, I mean, I can speak to some of the work that we've been doing internally at St. Mike's, um, you know, outside of, of our um, more external consulting work. But uh, the one of the, and this is probably relevant for most of us, is that when we, when we, um, when COVID hit in 2020, um, March 2020, we were tasked with uh, running uh, or, or, coming up with and building over the course of a weekend, a COVID assessment center for testing. So this is, you know, prior to vaccines, this, this was the big push was just simply to, um, uh, to, to get people tested. And so we started with um, a space and there was money allocated to build this, um, you know, cha- to basically change an, um, an auditorium or a, um, a, like a, where, where you would host um, like gatherings and, and, and cocktail parties and stuff at the hospital would, would like a hosting space. And it turned into our, um, into our COVID assessment center. So we had a blank slate, but no one really knew what exactly needed to happen and the steps that, that needed to occur. And so what we did, we started just with our usual green masking tape, painter's tape, uh, and started taping out and understanding and, and, and colleagues of ours had already sketched out on a basically a napkin what they thought it was going to look like. And so then their ideas formed the foundation for what we could do. And then we brought in people, uh, you know, we brought in like grad students from from a couple of levels up in the building, came down and we just told them, hey, you need to be you, we just need you to act as if you need a covid swab. Uh, what, and then we, you just want we just want you to talk aloud and tell us like what what you're looking for. What do you? Where are you confused? Uh, what do you need? Um, so we we want we, we were really big into like what are the confusion points that might occur. And so we explored that by people talking aloud. And then we ran. We just kept running this over the course of about forty eight hours. We ran multiple, and we just kept building. Uh, you might imagine like this Lego city kind of being built. So, you know, we just had building of infrastructure that occurred in place, like. Uh, the booth that people check in at, and then they they had to wait in a certain area, and then they moved to the where they get swabbed, and then as they moved out um, and and exited, uh, and if they needed a you know medical assessment, then then that might happen, and so that process evolved, and we started with taping numbers on the ground of like okay, yeah, this is you're in section one, and you move to two and three, and then our our medical media came in and built that out so that it looked much nicer. But we were able to, with high degree of certainty, in a short period of time, 
build the end product was exactly how it worked for like eight months. And we know, and you know, in retrospect, it was audited um, and found to be a highly efficient space um, by an external, by external auditors uh, compared to sort of other, um, you know, similar spaces. And so it just allowed us to, we could have built the space just with whatever was on the back of the napkin, but we wouldn't have, really gotten it fully right. And then we would have been required to shut down and, and redo it. And you can imagine this, you know, you think back to the stress of March, 2020, like the world was one giant stress ball. Um, and so it was just super high stakes, but we were so confident, you know, we didn't know hundred percent that it was going to work properly, but we knew with probably like 90% degree of certainty that this was going to work okay because we had already run it through. So there was no surprises we, we uh, you know, call this basically crash testing a car um, or crash testing a, a space. I mean, um, analogous to crash testing a car. You don't get into a car that, that hasn't been crash tested. Why do we let people get health care that hasn't been crash tested? You know, it's, it's just a wild phenomenon, but, but pervasive. It's such a great, great example. Do you recall thinking back um, utilizing those graduate students or other people on the team that were not clinicians that, aha moments or uh, tough points, pivot points where you're like, oh, we can't do this. We have to do that. Any specifics come to mind? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, um, the, this was back when fomite transmission was massive, right? That we thought that we could all get um, COVID from our, from our groceries. And, um, and you had to provide your health card to the person on the other side of the, the, the booth when you check in. And so we were trying to figure out how do you navigate that? And so we had these grad students kind of hold their health card up against the glass and like the person on the other side couldn't see it. And then we, we had to sort of quickly iterate what is going to work here. We ultimately ended up, you know, they just slide it, they put it in a little cup, slide it underneath the glass. It's visible easily. And then it kind of slides back with minimal sort of contact transmission, um, you know, seemingly um, a little bit crazy now, but, but at the time that was, you know, these were the types of things that were coming up and we were, and we had our IPAC, our, our hospital folks who were observing all of this being like, no, you can't touch that. They can't touch this. This is going to, you know, cause COVID. So, so um, all, all, it was, it was a fascinating kind of process to kind of uh, work through. You know, diverse teams are successful teams. What were the roles uh, of the people that were a part of your design team? Right. So we had the participants and they were just random individuals, authentic people, grad students, people that we just, you know, knew that were in the hospital. So they would behave as if they needed a COVID swab. We had observers. So some of those were the IPAC team, which is the infection prevention and control team. So the, the set of um, infectious disease physicians and nurses that, that are responsible for sort of keeping everything um, in order from, a, from a, an infection control perspective, uh, nurse staffing, MD staffing folks so that they could watch and understand how things were going to be going. The registration team was there. Um, and then our, internally, our, this was run through our SIM team. Um, and so me and, and several of our SIM um, simulation team members uh, were there and running these kind of regularly. So it was a, it was a full multidisciplinary team. Each person brought a unique skill set. And, uh, and, and key was the participants providing, um, you know, really uh, smart, um, smart feedback. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. You know, all of us have approached health design from different um, avenues and at different stages. So 
uh, LA, you're, I know you're not early career, but you're still early to mid career and you've done a pivot. Um, and you, of the three of us are probably doing the most formal study of design to learn principles, take classes. Can you tell us about your fellowship? Yeah, I can tell you that uh, since we started in October, um, we are in October, November, December, we've been meeting once a month. Uh, and now starting January to uh, June, it's every week. Uh, and so it's it's a big time commitment. Uh, we have homework. We have like reading lists and whatnot. Uh, but so far in the past three months, we're still working on our problem, understanding the problem, understanding the need statements. Like um, we just had a class yesterday and um, I was texting my uh, my my classmates that uh, this is getting frustrating because we're like I feel like for the past especially for the past two weeks the answer that we're getting is you need to explore more you need to understand that problem more and and that is the process right we have to just trust the system is going to work because that's how they've been training us and because there's a lot of unlearning like we're very uh, quick to like solutions finding already but uh, even with the the language that we use. Um, we have to like cross it out. It's like, well, that's thinking of a solution already. You're not supposed to think of solution. You have to really understand the problem before you can truly uh, think of that solution. Do you find it frustrating? I love it. So, I mean, the frustration is actually part of those like growth stress that people experience. It's uh, It definitely pushes me in an area where I haven't really read this much in a while. And I'm le- I'm talking about like researching things for the problem that I'm trying to solve and at the same time like not really having a lot of time to do that because there's also the other life that I have which is like my work I, I still have expectations uh, to do work um, especially with the uh, uh, latest COVID surge I'm one of the two people in charge of reaching out to every faculty uh, uh, and residents who get COVID uh, and, and checking in with them and then thinking outside the box solutions of how can we make them feel like they, that we care about them? And so like on the side, like that, I still do that. So uh, last weekend, for instance, I was snowboarding and I got a text about like another faculty getting um, COVID. And so I'm like, I'm pausing. I'm like copy pasting all the resources that I know at that time. And a lot of these, as you see, it's like evolving. So in terms of, I think, balancing the time, um, I think it's just that commitment. I had to be very clear at the very beginning, which is also a reason why um, this year I didn't submit as much uh, 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 presentations. I didn't uh, submit. I didn't commit myself to doing a lot more than I used to um, because I knew that uh, the time commitment for the fellowship is going to be a lot. Yeah, taking time to understand the problem. Yeah, eventually, though the the perfect partnership of design with wellness um, is clear. Yeah, definitely. I think um, a lot of the solutions that uh, we come up so far, um, especially in healthcare, um, really put the onus on the individual. And there's this sense of betrayal that happens whenever we tell them, like, you need to be more resilient, you need to do X, Y, Z. And even with the problem that I'm trying to address right now, like that continues to come up. And so when we talk about stakeholders and and, in the problem uh, that we're trying to solve, even though the stakeholders will be like the individual physicians, I have to put it in context of how can the system, the institution, support this. And so like that's part of the, uh, the, the understanding the problem. Um, so, yeah. That's great. Andrew, do you have examples that come to mind of when you thought we, we've got this, we've solved this, we put it through our iterative process and we got it and somehow you missed the mark? 
I mean, I don't think we ever think that we've fully got it. Um, I, I think what we're okay with is having a, um, being backstopped by an understanding that, that it, that we're not done. Like, as long as you, yeah, I think, I think that's, I've sort of moved away from this notion that we sort of implement things um, and rather you try and be a bit more sort of focused on like piloting processes because it just sort of puts an, an end to anything, um, any, any change that, that happens. So the moment that something kind of rolls out, it's assumed that that's it. Um, Work we did with, um, with, with, uh, we were, we were working with, um, through advanced performance, we were working with, um, some, a large, uh, national gym chain about rolling out stuff for, for COVID. And, you know, it was us sort of consulting them and taking them through a design and, and, and testing process of their, um, processes during COVID to sort of make sure that they were, they, they could respond appropriately, um, both, you know, on the ground, but also we took them through virtual simulations and we would, we, we sort of w- were very clear that, that we would crash test their processes, but that, you know, then we would expect them to implement. And there again, you know, we would naturally use that word and I don't even I pilot the process. And yet we would expect then that then they would come back to us in a month and we would revise it and, and through another simulation, um, and to make sure that what it, what we got and what we helped them make decisions for, uh, ultimately is what, what was, you know, rolls out as intended. So we would take them through processes like, um, imagine that your, uh, that, that, that the club, um, or that somewhere in your, in your, you know, many clubs, um, has an, a COVID outbreak. How are you going to respond as a, um, a group of executives within that, not just, you know, how do you, how does your manager respond, but how do you guys as a national organization respond and, and deal with media, all deal on the ground, deal with, make sure that there's not, you know, people moving between clubs and all of that. And we would take them through that process using simulation with the hope that then they would reflect back on that and make changes to their processes. And then we would try it again, you know, in a few weeks and they would have, we'd have both simulation based data as well as real time data. Cause they would tell us, Oh, this is how it worked when we rolled it out. And so we, we, but we were always very clear that you, that, that these are always that, that as long that, that there's a learning process and that you have to reflect back. Otherwise, you know, you're going to be, um, you're going to be stuck and you're not going to be able to um, adjust appropriately with, with changes. Yeah. When you and I first met, it was in Philadelphia at Jefferson. It was a health design boot camp. And if I recall, one of your tasks to do when you returned back uh, to Toronto was to work on the redesign of a trauma room or a trauma bay. And I followed via social media your heat maps, um, you know, sort of the the lines that you would add that almost look like uh, I was watching a, a sports uh, playback of a, of a, of a play uh, uh, of American football. Um, can you walk us through that redesign? Yeah. So that, um, that, that was, uh, took place over several years and we started with the understanding the problem and, and the heat maps you're referring to and the movement in within a clinical space they're referring to were nurses and clinicians, uh, physicians, everybody sort of in the space and how much they physically moved. We removed everything else. We actually, you couldn't even see it. We, 
we just had um, the 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 um, the background of the trauma bay with just basically a tracing, a line tracing a, um, a, a, that would uh, transition over the course of the simulation, 20 minutes or so, and we time-lapsed it. And at the end, you would have this, what looks like, um, you know, a two-year-old scribbling all over this, but basically it was people moving. And what it allowed us to do along, coupled with feedback from the individuals in these simulations that we would run, was to help inform the design of the subsequent clinical space because we would look and see why are all these people moving so much when we could actually design the space more efficiently and it helped illuminate uh, that that we were very inefficient with our our work in in clinical medicine because we pride ourselves i think in in emergency medicine particularly but in medicine in general this macgyverism of like well i'm gonna I can do anything, even if despite the system, I'm going to be able to overcome it. And, and, you know, we can put things on the ceiling and I'll be able to get it, but that doesn't make any sense from a patient perspective. Like, I don't want that. If I'm the patient, I want it to be at the fingertips of the clinician doing the task. And so we then use simulation iteratively using tabletop simulations first so that we could easily move stuff around. Um, We used the heat maps to, actually shrink the number of beds in our trauma bay because we just realized that we couldn't accommodate for the initial design. It actually would encumber um, care. And so we actually shrunk it, but we were able to upsize um, or be able to upsize as needed. So the standard, you know, um, space only works with two trauma bays, but if needed, we can go up to three saved on some money because, you know, you didn't need as many booms. So that's good for the institution. And then ultimately we, tested it and crash tested it before it went live. So there were like six or seven patients, and I put patients in quotation marks there, uh, simulated patients who were in that trauma bay before ever a real trauma patient was there. And so we knew, because then we found stuff that was missing. Um, and then we made sure that it was there when a real patient showed up. And, you know, we, we, we had a successful ED thoracotomy within a week of, of it opening, um, which is, you know, and I, for those that are non-clinical listening to this, that's that's sort of a life-saving, pretty fairly heroic measure to to kind of get somebody that that has died um, back to life, basically from from a from a serious trauma, and uh, and that's just not a common event. And the fact that our trauma bay was able to accommodate that and do it well, um, yeah, we're something we're pretty proud of. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I'm going to in the show notes make sure the audience is aware of the white paper that uh, you posted uh, about simulation-informed design. And there's an opening sentence that I'm going to read, and then I'd ask each of you to share what comes to mind. Examples of bad design are troublingly abundant. So, L.A., what comes to mind for you when you think about examples of bad design? One, two... I think there's a ton of uh, bad designs out there, but I think it, a lot of this because we didn't really think of the end user. So, for instance, um, I'll give you an example that uh, that I will see tonight uh, in our uh, emergency department. Uh, there's we have different zones, uh, but uh, there is a piece of pillar. There's a pillar um, in the middle of the uh, the workstations for physicians and trainees, and so. Whenever we do sign-outs there, you can see people kind of reaching around because you can't see each other. Um, and it's been very hard, but, like, you cannot physically move that. I think um, uh, the more that I say this, like, if you go to a trauma bay or a patient room, it's also very different for each and every room. And so 
your your understanding of like this is where I would reach for that uh, uh, light or this is where I would reach for the, uh, the the hand cleanser. It's it's always different, and that is not helpful for anybody, especially when um, as as uh, Andrew was talking about preparing for COVID in March 2020. We realized that not every room had a um, a red uh, red bin for our our garbage, right? So where do you then throw uh, your your PPE? Or some rooms have an anti room that you can like don off and doff uh, off. Uh, but then certain places you don't have that, so you're really like in the hallway. Which then at that time when everybody was so worried about fomites, um, you're really you're really uh, making people uneasy when they see that. Um, if I may, I'll connect this also to what Andrew was uh, saying earlier, which is why you ask about like big failures. Um, I think the reason why there's we, we call these like bad designs um, and we correlate this to something really bad is because there's not a lot of like uh, thought about it earlier on. Uh, what I'm trying to say is so in design thinking, there's this notion of fail fast, fail often. And so you really need, so you really have to understand that when you're working on design projects, you just have to accept that there's going to be a ton of failures, and that's okay. You normalize that. And so even for in residency, we learned to to change the term. Uh, and Andre, I, I heard you like changing your word from implement to, to piloting, because every time we change something in the residency, it would drive them nuts. Like, why are we doing this? Like, there's a lot of opinion. Again, we're working with very smart people. But if you mentioned we're piloting, they're a lot more adaptable to that because they, they think it's like a short term, which then allows us to really understand the problem, really try different solutions. And then um, the final product, you get better buy-in because everybody has been invested in it as opposed to that one person who thought of this great idea that is actually not the right solution. Just like the pillar in between, like in the middle of the uh, the workstation or that like, uh, lights that uh, nobody can reach when they're examining the patient. Like those things were thought of by likely non-physicians, non-emergency physicians, but because they're paid a lot and it's part of their contract, it's just a thing that we accept. Yeah, bad design of the built environment. Andrew, did anything come to mind for you? Yeah, I mean, um, all of those things echo uh, super, super well, unfortunately. The, the micro frustrations that occur on a regular basis, I think are are are, are underappreciated. And, you know, I, I'm certainly not a wellness expert like Elias, but, um, but, but that, that's the, those things that kind of come up on a regular basis. Like if every time you're doing a sign out, you're looking around a corner and you can't see the person you're talking to, that would just, you know, it's particularly troubling, particularly for a high risk um, event like that. Two things that come to mind for me and things that we've worked on and we, we use when we work with architects is, um, the lack of horizontal workspace to put stuff on. Yeah. I'm a firm believer that the patient should never be their own procedural table. You know, the, and I, and I have done this and, you know, full disclosure, I have put many essential lines on someone's chest, but uh, I think that's just horrible that, that we do that. It, it contaminates the field. It's just things fall. Um, and, and why, why do we need, why do we do that? The other thing that really bothers me, and, and I don't know why this is the case is that, so many resuscitation rooms, not all, it's getting better, but so many resuscitation rooms, the only place where you have vital sign monitors, vital sign, hence it strikes me as important, it's implied in the term, in the, in the words, are at, at, the, at the head of the bed. Um, 
purposely blinding the person that's doing the airway uh, or the airway team. And so to imagine that you might put something like the way that you have in an airport, you know, hanging down from the ceiling at the foot of the bed, I, I don't know why that doesn't happen more frequently. Um, it's certainly, we, we, we have adopted that at our hospital based on some of the, the work we've been doing. And we've kind of pushed that out with some of our clients, but it's so common um, to, to cre- you're, you're creating a gap in understanding of what patient physiology is in that moment. It's, it's fascinating that that happens. Yet we have every day you watch people crank their heads around to, to, to look for, for, for critical information that's actually going to change the course of a patient's um, journey. Yeah. Those uh, micro frustrations that you describe sort of build up over time and affect our wellness. Deep appreciation and thank you to Andrew and to LA. Before we get to the Risa wrap up, here's a word from the host and creator of Revision Path. My name is Maurice Cherry and I'm the host of Revision Path, an award-winning weekly interview podcast that showcases the world's best black designers, developers, and digital creatives. The Risa wrap up. So, I want to actually follow up on something that Andrew mentioned, and that's the McLamey curve. In 2004, Patrick McLamey drew a set of curves, which was based on a pretty self-evident observation. An architectural project becomes more difficult to change the more developed it becomes. This is pretty intuitive. And it's stuck. The key point is that architects expel their effort at a time when design changes are relatively costly. McLamey and his disciples advocated that if we shift the design effort forward in the project, front load it, this will reduce the cost of design changes. And that audience is the lesson for today's episode. Have a good week. See you soon. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare equity and current trends. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. You can listen on whatever platform you subscribe to podcasts. Our team includes Stacey Gitlin and Dr. Giuliano DePorto. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please contact me, Risa at thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm on Twitter at Risa E. Lewis. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.